Good morning. That's a little bit more life than uh, first service. Just a little bit more. Uh, so for those that don't know me, my name is Jimmy Fowler. I'm the executive pastor here at Redeemer Fellowship. And if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to Acts chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 32 to 37. Acts 4, 32 to 37. When I was looking at the list, the, uh, the list of uh, uh, upcoming sermons, and I knew, I was looking at the text, and I'm like, I know I'm coming up soon. I know I'm going to be, it's part of, you know, I'm going to be up next. I got to pick my passage. I didn't want chapter 5. No one wants the beginning of chapter 5, so good luck with you, Pastor Joe, next week. This week I get chapter, at the end of chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. And oftentimes you'll, you'll have a preacher or someone reading this and, and they kind of front load certain thoughts and feelings and uh, aspirations into this passage. They'll kind of look at this passage and, and sometimes an individual will maybe look at it and say, hey, this is a passage about money and giving towards the church. So let's go ahead and talk about the building campaign and, and selling off what you have so you could kind of bless the ministry and bless this and that. For others that look at this passage and say, well, no, this is... It, socialism is biblical. You could see it right here. I'll, I would like to actually say, I think as I look at this, both of those viewpoints are, are wrong. While there's some aspects of, of financial stewardship and things like that, I think this actually has a text more to do with relationships. I think it has more to do with how the early church interacted with each other. I actually think this is kind of like a, uh, uh, it's a fulfillment of Acts 2.42, right? If you remember back in Acts 2.42, there's uh, all these people come in, they're, they're hearing the gospel, they're, they're uh, uh, responding to the gospel, and it says, you know, so many people are added, and then it goes, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to the prayers, right? And also in that passage, I think in 43, it mentions about kind of selling off and taking care of those as any had need. To me, as I read this, I'm thinking, well, this individual, this is just a continuation of that, saying, listen, the early church hasn't forgotten that. How the early church has interacted with each other is important. What they saw about each other, what they felt about each other was important. How they took care of one another was important. Because you know just well as I do, if you've ever had to deal with a person, relationships are, are tricky. Relationships can be funny. Some relationships are life-giving. Those are the best ones. Those are the ones where, where you're excited to see each other. You don't have to feel like you have to put on a show. You could be yourself. They are themselves. You're able just to kind of hang out and relax and, and get to know one another. That there's mutual edification there's mutual encouragement. There's a mutual love. It's not one-sided. You know, often we, we have our community groups where we hope this sort of life-giving relationship happens. Oftentimes we find it in our discipleship groups, smaller groups of, of two to three to four individuals where they, they're really transparent, open, direct, and honest with each other about what's going on in their lives. And these are places that we're trying to help cultivate these life-giving friendships. Some of us, though, have been in relationships that are draining, where it's really one-sided, where you feel like all I'm doing is giving and giving and giving, and I'm not really getting much out of, much out of this. And it's not even because the individual can't give more. It's that they just really don't. 
give anything. It's a very one-sided directional relationship. Some have had just really toxic relationships where it's just not healthy, where people are gaslighting you, they're pushing your buttons, they're trying to get a rise out of you. They have little to no respect for, for your boundaries and your beliefs. Some of us have actually faced that within our own families. And then there's some relationships that are just transactional. Where it's, I'm, I'm offering you something, expecting something in return. You know, it's kind of like, you know, if you ask your friend to help you move, they're going to ask you to help them move later on down the line. Some relationships are transactional. I mean, the best example I could think of is, is uh, I really like The Office. I'm sorry. Love The Office. But there's this episode where uh, Dwight is, comes into the office. He's got this basket full of bagels. He went to New York, got this basket full of bagels, and he's handing them out. And they're like, what's going on? Why are you doing this? He's like, hey, well, can't a guy just bring you some bagels because he wants to? Now, nah, in actuality, he's hoping to gain their favor so that he could get a, you know, uh, he could cash in that favor to get another colleague fired. Somehow, I give you bagels equals Jim Halper fired was the math he did in his head. But sometimes we, we don't see it as that absurd. But we do have those relationships that are more transactional based, maybe subtly, and oftentimes they can be explicitly. In our text this morning, as we're looking at Acts 4, Really what we want to look at is, is what does it mean to be unified as a church? What is church unity? I mean, as you look at, at Scripture, as we read this, we, we talk a lot about our union with Christ, but our union with Christ also leads to our union with one another. And our union with Christ and our unity with each other reflects or is reflected and shown to the world by how we witness together and what the world sees about how we interact with each other. If I had to sum it up, I would, I would sum it up like this, that gospel unity shows itself in gospel witness. Gospel unity will show itself in gospel witness. Look at with me now Acts chapter 4. And we're just going to read right now 32 and 33. Or, and 34. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed as any had need. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you. It's, it's such an honor and joy to be with my brothers and sisters. To be with my brothers and sisters and to be looking at your word and to be sharing your word. Father, I, I ask that, that your spirit would be here with us. That you would give us ears to hear. That our hearts would be changed that we would grow closer to you, but that we'd also be growing closer to each other as one body of Christ, as one body of believers. One people that has been saved and redeemed by your blood. We ask this all in your name. Amen. 
So gospel unity shows itself in gospel witness. You see, this is not a false unity. This is not a fake unity. It's not a unity to just kind of, kind of push it through, but it's a true gospel transformation. It takes the gospel's work in the life of an individual to bring about this, this sort of transformation. We're going to be looking at this in three sections here. We're going to be looking at the union of the saints. Secondly, we're going to be looking at the communion of the saints. Because there's a difference there between the union of the saints and the communion of the saints. And finally, we'll be looking at the profession of the saints. Union of the saints, communion of the saints, profession of the saints. First part of verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. I love that. The full number of those who believed. You know, we're just having, we've been going through Acts and we've been seeing this, this great work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit working in and among God's people. Giving them boldness to proclaim the word. And even last week, Last week, as Pastor Joe was talking about this prayer that, that they were charged, the disciples, the apostles were told, don't go proclaim the gospel. They asked prayerfully, give us more boldness, Lord, to proclaim your word. You see, the basis of our union is that salvation. Now, the full number of those who believed, it's the gospel's work in our lives. When we come together as God's people, it's not that we just randomly came together. The Lord in his sovereignty has brought us here. The Lord has planned for this and the Lord has called you to himself. So when we look at what the basis of our union is, this is not a club. This is not a frat house. This is not just an association. When we gather together on the Lord's day together here at Redeemer Fellowship, it is because the gospel has, we have trusted in the gospel. We have believed in the gospel. We have trusted the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That the Holy Spirit has done a work in our hearts and regenerated us so that we could believe in him. We have embraced his truth, this hope that we all share. The basis of our union is the gospel itself. That Jesus himself has taken individuals that we, from all different backgrounds, social and economic, different age groups, different ethnicities, he has brought us together as one people. And it's all because of his blood. It is what he has done for us. The gospel is what unites us first and foremost. That's why we're not a, just this social movement out there. It's not because, this is why we're not just an association. It's not why we just sit there and try to have these little programs. No, we're coming together because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What he has done in us and for us. But we're united in that salvation. But we're also united because of our relationship with the Trinity. With God himself. I mean, we have this relationship with God. Take a look at uh, Malachi 2.10. Malachi 2.10 says this. Have we not all one father? There's that same language again. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our father? See, we are called together as children of God. As one people of God, Judah, uh, uh, why then are we faithless to one another? Why then are we not meeting together? Why then do we slander each other? Why then do we gossip about each other? Why then do we not look at each other as fellow children of God? Because we're called, as Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 and 10. 
as the people of God, but you are a chosen race. You, God in his sovereignty has picked you. He's elected you. He has drawn you to himself. The notion that we could pick God on our own, the notion that we could figure this thing out, that we could figure out salvation on our own, that somehow we in this room are smarter than everybody else, and it made more sense to us. It's only by the grace of God. It's only by the Spirit of God. And it's only by the choosing of God that we're here. We Think about this. Our relationships in this room are based upon the election of God. That he himself has chosen us and brought us near. Many of us would not know each other. Many of us would not have the time of day for each other. I know for myself, if it wasn't for the gospel, if it wasn't for God's work in my life, I never would have met my spouse. For what earthly reason would I have to, one, go to Canada, two, to go one of the, the third poorest town in Canada, where I don't, I'm not a lumberman, jack, number jack, that's what they call them. I'm not one of those guys. I'm not, you know, I don't know what I'm doing there, but I'm there to proclaim the gospel. And it's only by the Holy Spirit's leading that God has called me. He called me to that place, to where I met my wife. And God has called you to this place, to gather together as one people, rejoicing and worshiping him. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. For what reason? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We'll be discussing that a bit more later about our calling as God's people to be a witness to the glory of God, to be a light in a dark world. But we have this relationship with Jesus as well, and that's what unites us. If you want 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17, I, I read this earlier during communion. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So there's the individual themselves. We're participating in this, the bread, we're participating in this blood. Verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. I mean, that's a, a, a view, a shift, a change that needs to happen for us as we gather together at the Lord's table. It's not just this isolated Jesus and me sort of faith that we're called to. But we're called as God's people, as God's children, to rejoice together as one body who partakes in one bread. And this relationship with the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 13 says this, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This cultural differences, this background differences, all pale in comparison. It means nothing. It's rubbish compared to the unity that we have in Christ to the, relate, the, the relationship that we have with God, with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit, gathering together as one people. And as one people, we, we have this faith. We trust in the word of God. We trust that the word of God is living and active, that it is true, and that we, we live by the teachings together, that it influences what we think and what we believe. 
But see, there's, it's not just enough to have this basis of our union. There has to be this outworking of our union. Going back to Acts 4. Acts 4, 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. That should be, there should be something there that's reminding you as you're reading that. There, there should be a reminder there. If you think back to Deuteronomy, again, we've been reading, uh, using a few examples of that one language, but in the, uh, in the Shema, it talks about, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You are, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with your soul, with your mind, and your strength. That Jesus, though, when he's talking about the Decalogue, and he's, and he's summarizing the Ten Commandments, and he's summarizing this, he, he says that, and he adds, and love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the early church here is working that out in their union, in their unity with one another. They're loving God and loving their neighbor. And they're doing it in tangible ways, in financial ways. And so we're called then to have this unity, this one heart, this one affection, this one mind, this one soul. And we're also called to protect our unity. Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're called to protect our unity. We've been called together as God's people, and that's, we're called to then live a worthy life according to that. And that then means we're called to bear with one another, protect one another, be eager to maintain this peace and this unity with one another. See, I love the words used there, bearing with one another, eager to maintain, because these words are active. They're not passive. Too many of us are passive when it comes to, regard, when it comes to our relationship with the local church. And when I say that, please don't hear me say, go do more. That's not what I'm saying. But it's easy to sit on the sidelines, it's easy to not engage. It's easy to just uh, come spectate, enjoy the service, and move on. When we're called as brothers and sisters to engage with one another. And that takes risk. That takes vulnerability. That takes some work. And it's work, personally, I struggle to do. For some of us, it's, it's hard to put ourselves out there. And I know for some of you, it's hard to put yourself out there. And some of you have put yourself out there in the past and have been taken advantage of because of it. I get it. I see you. I hear you. I know what you're feeling there. And yet we're still called as brothers and sisters to be actively participating with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Being transparent, being honest, being open, being direct. Verse 32, the second part. If we go back to uh, Acts 4, verse 32. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. I don't believe this is a proof text for socialism or communism. I don't believe that's what the word of God is saying here. Number of reasons for it. One, it was a voluntary act, right? Right? It was voluntary. It wasn't forced. It wasn't under compulsion. 
It was a voluntary act. And when we see the words, they had everything in common, what it means is, what's mine is yours. And when, if you need it, I'm here to fulfill that need. So when, when there was need, when needs arose, the church responded. And you still see that today in the benevolence ministry, which we'll get into. But see, the idea that there was just no wealthy believers is, is not true. I mean, looking through scripture, you see, you see wealthy believers that, that God has used for the advancement for the kingdom. I mean, or even just to bless Christ. Think of, uh, think of Joseph of Arimathea. I mean, he had pre-bought his tomb and he gave it to Jesus. Or later on, we'll look at Joseph called Barnabas, who had sold off one of his fields to help out. Or even Lydia. Lydia, yeah, you find in Romans that you see, as Paul's kind of encouraging, saying, look at the great work that, that she has done and how she has enabled this by, by opening up her home. I mean, even just the idea of the home churches, think of that. With the numbers we've been reading, obviously they can't all gather under one, one roof. So now you have multiple homes being used. For a wealthy individual, you would see maybe you could maybe fit 50. Some, some uh, speculate you could maybe fit 50 in one house. If they're exceptionally wealthy, you might get up to 120, in, uh, including the courtyard and the surrounding area behind that. I mean, see, you have then this God using individuals and people offering of what they have for the betterment of the kingdom. For others. And when you see that, you have to also have this backdrop of some of these cultural items that are going on at the time. You know, even as you're reading here, the whole idea of a patron, someone that, that is kind of giving and, and subsidizing what the work that's being done. I mean, often there's a number of scholars that actually believe that Luke is writing because he has a donor that's helping him enable this, Theophilus. Hence, he gives him the, mo the, the title, Most Excellent Theophilus. For others, there's, there is this sense, especially in that culture, of a status-based culture. Depending on who you are and what you've done. Depending upon your edu education. But see, believers were different. You see, the culture there would have this transactional base, this status-based relationship with one another. But believers were different because all are equal in God's eyes. For the believers of the day, they saw that there was no more Jew or Gentile distinction. That all were washed by the blood of the Lamb. That all were God's possession. And so as such, they would give. They would give of their possessions. They would give of what they had without any expectation of it being repaid back. Without any expectation that they would expect, that, that anyone would even try to pay them back. You know, we continue this work here in the church today, on, in the benevolence ministry. In the benevolence ministry, we have that, that individuals specifically give towards that fund to help others in need here at Redeemer. And I, I know personally, I know personally, having seen how God has worked through you, where people have, have selflessly and sacrificially gave and I've seen medical bills wiped away. I've seen crippling debt wiped away. We've seen people that have maybe lost their employment and needed a little bit of a bridge gap to get on to their next one. 
We've seen car payments. These are things that we've, we've come alongside and said, hey, you have a need? We'll fill this together. And the best part of it all, best part of all of it, is the individual has no idea whoever donated towards that fund. And those who donated have no idea how, like, in what way and who has received those funds. You see, brothers and sisters, this is, this is what we're talking about here when we talk about that benevolence, being able to, to give and have these things in common. So that when one has a need, a need arises, the community may come together and fulfill that need. So when we look at a community, we ask, okay, how do we know there's unity within here? Well, first you'll see it in three ways. Servanthood, selflessness, sacrifice. Uh, sacrifice. Servanthood. When a community is unified, a community looks to serve its other members. It looks to come alongside them. It looks to encourage them. It looks to help them. A community that is unified wants to serve their brothers and sisters in Christ. And they do it selflessly, without regard for themselves, without regard and, and putting the needs of others before their own needs. And often, yes, it is sacrificial. It could be your, of your own, of yourself. Maybe you have to give of yourself. And that's hard sometimes because time is the one thing you can't get back. Time is the one thing you can't try to slow down here. Time is the one thing that is a valuable resource that's just it's depleting every moment. And so oftentimes it is a sacrifice when someone asks, hey, let's go get together for a coffee or let's go get together. Can you help me, can you help me understand uh, this passage? Or maybe can you come and help me move this bench or move this couch? There are times where, or how about this? It is a sacrifice to give it up one's time. Can you help out in Journey Kids? Can you help out with the chairs? Can you help out in the hospitality ministry? I mean, yes, that is sacrificing one's time. And we're called to do it selflessly, looking uh, and putting others' needs before our own. I mean, I think of all the people that, that are part of the Sunday morning service. If you don't know, it's quite a bit. It's not just Pastor Joe and someone with a guitar, right? There's a lot that goes into this. There's a lot of planning, a lot of preparation, a lot of prayer. And I want to thank you all because there's a number of you, a lot of you, majority of you are giving of yourselves in these various ministries on a Sunday morning. Whether it's in, in worship, AV, Journey Kids, hospitality, the finance ministry, there's so much that goes into this. And people give of themselves, putting others first, so that when we gather together, we can worship. We create a space where people can worship and praise God. But sometimes it is resources. I think it was Martin Luther. Pretty sure it's Martin Luther. I'm going to say it's Martin Luther, but if you find out it's not Martin Luther, I, I said, someone once said. So someone once said, there are three conversions, right? Uh, first, it's of your heart. There's a conversion of the heart, right? So you're regenerating, the things have changed there. Your affections are now different. Maybe you, had a, uh, you were an enemy of God. You had a hatred for God. You didn't want to follow his ways, but your heart then changed and you had this affection for God and for his people. So there's a conversion of the heart that happens. Second, there's a conversion of the mind 
where there's this renewing of the mind as you're reading scripture, as you're listening to, to the word being proclaimed, you're then confronted with, well, hold on, my feelings, my thoughts, my desires is for this to be the truth. But now that I hear the word of God, I have to change my thinking. I have to change my position. I have to change what I thought was correct to what the word of God actually says is truth. So there's a, uh, a conversion of the heart, the mind, and then the purse. What one does with their resources. Because it's, it's difficult sometimes for people. It's difficult. And sometimes it's, and, and I don't say it's difficult like when someone doesn't, isn't able to. If someone's not able to, I don't believe the Lord's saying, put in the coffer. I don't. I have a pastor friend of mine. Uh, he's from Uganda, uh, Michael Rothomio. And so uh, I was living in Uganda at this time, and he went off to Kenya for this uh, pastor's retreat. So he went to this pastor's retreat, and I think it's like 11, 11.30 at night. I get a phone call. He's like, he's like Big Jim, I need your help. And I go, what's, what's going on? He goes, so the guy said, give everything you have, and the Lord will bless you. And so I was like, oh, I'll give. And I forgot, I need bus money to get back home. I was like, well, Micah, I can't drive. What are we going to do? He's like, he's like, I need you to go grab one of the guys and let's drive over. I can drive to Kenya to try to pick up Micah. See, if you don't have it, I don't believe the Lord's expecting you to, to give towards that. Because I do, do believe there's wisdom there. But for some people, there is this love of money, this hold of it, that scripture is completely against and calls sin and idolatry. You see, these signs of our, of our unity is also seen in how we meet together, how we gather together, how we don't neglect one another. When we worship together, I mean, as we share as well in the Lord's Supper, in baptism, I mean, next week we get this visual sign of our unity with one another. As an individual is going through baptism, going through the baptism waters, there's this unity that we have there with them. As they're, they're symbolically uh, uh, being lowered down, dead to their sins, being raised up to this new life, this unity, this union that they have with Christ. We share in that, and we remember of that, and we rejoice with them in what God has done in them because we know what God has done in us. And sometimes we are unified in our suffering together. Some of us have walked through pain together. We've walked through hardships. And right now we're in a day of our age where we, where we walk through some levels of persecution. One day it'll be ramped up and we'll walk through that together as God's people. And now while we're talking about unity, I think we need to pause and say there are times where division is necessary. There are times where a line has to be drawn. Because I've heard pastors, I've heard charlatans use passages and themes like unity as justification for no accountability of their sin and their abuse. How they've abused the flock. They've abused church members for some, they use it to justify no accountability for the abuse of children. 
And they say, no, we're brothers and sisters. You must forgive. We're we're unified. There are times where division's necessary. One such time is true gospel versus false gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what we stake everything on. That's what we hold on to. Any other worldly, secular ideology we cast out. We don't allow because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That he has lived for us, that he has died for us, he has risen, that he has ascended, and right now he is interceding on our behalf. We have this gospel that because of him we are redeemed, we are justified, we are declared righteous. Any other gospel is false that tells you you there's some sort of works-based salvation. Any other gospel is false in that we, we, cre- we do not allow that. We also don't allow, we, I mean, the, early on we had to deal with, with certain ideologies coming in the church. And so the church had to talk about, well, okay, what are the fundamentals of our faith? What are the things that we must hold on to? And oftentimes we use the word fundamentalism in the most negative sense, but in the purest sense, it was one that held on to the fundamentals of the faith. One that held on to the inerrancy of Scripture. That this is the Word of God that is breathed out by God. That we could trust it. We, could, we know that as we read it and we're receiving, we know, what, we know what His will is for us. For what we are to live and how we are to believe. When you deny the inerrancy of Scripture, you begin then to pick and choose and decide on your own what it is I do want to believe and how I want to live. Because if the Bible can be wrong on certain truths, well then, why do I have to believe on it for something I'm uncomfortable with? When we talk about the virgin birth of Christ, this is important. We stand on that. We stand on that. We stand on substitutionary atonement that Jesus gave of himself in our place. On the bodily resurrection of Christ, not spiritually, the bodily resurrection of Christ. And the authenticity of miracles, which includes the second coming of Christ. These are some of the fundamentals of our faith. And those are things I'm willing to stand on and I'm willing to to divide over. All those second and third tier issues, whether the mode of baptism or pre-mill, ah-mill, post-mill, cereal mills, stone mills, whatever other mills are out there, are not the items that are going to divide us as a church. But we are united together on the gospel We're united together on the personal work of Jesus Christ. And this unity that we have among each other is visible to our community. It's visible to the world around us. I mean, let's look at verses uh, 33 to 35 again. And with great power, the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were landowners, were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. What I love about the early community, what I love about the church here, and I love what what Luke is kind of showing us, is that this was a community that was Holy Spirit powered. Now I know sometimes we hear Holy Spirit power, we hear something else. I'm not, that's not what I'm trying to get at. But what I am trying to say is that this is a community that relied on the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit was influencing, that the Holy Spirit was filling, and because of that, was changing their hearts 
so that they were united with each other in community. Let's think about that. How hard is it to be in relationships sometimes? How hard of a struggle is it to be loving towards those that, that maybe we, we struggle with? I mean, it takes the Holy Spirit to really work on each and every single one of us because each and every single one of us are flawed sinners, redeemed, but sinners nonetheless who hurt each other, who damage each other. And so some of you have know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you are coming out of those churches. Some of you have been into those churches where the pastor tells you, I love you, and yet you know how hard they've hurt you, how much they've hurt you. See, the Holy Spirit enabled this community what, with what? For, with great power. They had this great power to testify, to testify about who Jesus was. I mean, even last week, Pastor Joe was talking about verse 31, that they were praying for boldness. They had just been told, do not go and testify, do not go and proclaim. And yet they come out and pray, give me more boldness to do this thing. And with great power, they're testifying about who? The Lord Jesus Christ. And there was this great grace among them. And scholars as, as, uh, uh, look at this text and they go, okay, well, hold on. What does this great grace mean? Is it, is it the grace of God is upon them? This great grace of God upon them? Is it they're gracious with one another, right? And how they deal and act with each other? And then another one is uh, they look at the grace and it can be translated as kind of like a favor. So did they have favor in the community around them? Right? Because as the community's watching them, they're seeing this and they garnered favor with the community. Yes. I think it's all three. I think a case can be made for all three. That this grace of God that's among them is empowering them to be gracious with one another, loving with one another, unified with one another. And that grace translates to favor in the community. In a culture that was vastly different, in a culture that had different norms and rules and regulations, here was the people of God living differently. Here was the people of God treating each other with more respect and not looking at the social hierarchy. Here was the people of God taking care of one another. And not just, not just financially, but prayerfully and, and, and hospitably. They were patient with each other. They were extending grace with each other and they were giving forgiveness when those sinned against them. Because if you've been in church and if you're long enough in church, let me tell you this, someone's going to hurt you. Someone's going to offend you. Someone's just going to, they're just, they're really going to upset you. And so learning to forgive. Verse 36 and 37. Here we have this example of, of Barnabas, and it reads, Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. There are some that think maybe this, this passage should kind of go along with next week's passage, or when we go, get to Acts 5, I should say. Because uh, it's kind of got like a compare and contrast, right? You've got, you got Barnabas, and then you've got, you know, Ananias and Sapphira. But I actually do think it's, it works really well in this text. Because here we've been talking about how 
uh, there's a full number of those who believe were one heart, one soul, and that no one that had any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And now you have this example in Barnabas. And again, this is a, I think it's a kind of a, a visual representation of Acts 2, 42 and 43, of this community that's drawn together, that's devoted to one another and taking care of each other. And Barnabas here is this, he's called this son of encouragement. And it's a good intro to who Barnabas is. I mean, he's, he not only partnered with Paul in gospel work, he vouched for Paul when the, when the disciples were too afraid to let him in. When they thought, this is a trick, this is a trap, is that, you know, the Star Wars thing. That, no, no, he's coming in to infiltrate, he's going to know where we're at, he's going to come at us. And Barnabas yet vouches for him, gives a testimony of what he has seen. And Barnabas, he sacrificed for others' needs. He sold off a field so that those who had need would be taken care of. See, Barnabas is an example of, of a believer that truly believed in the unity of believers, in the community of believers. He gave of himself into gospel work. He gave of himself to encourage Paul, to walk alongside him, to mentor him, to take care of him, to vouch for him. He saw the needs of the community around him, or his Christian community, his other brothers and sisters, and stepped in where he could with what he can. With a field or with land that he had, he sold it. With Paul, he offered himself as an encouragement and as a brother in ministry. See, brothers and sisters, our community is watching because our gospel unity shows itself in gospel witnessing, in how we witness and then what the community witnesses through us, in us. I do think the world is, is looking at us. Sometimes they're, they're looking to try to have a gotcha moment. See, I, I knew there was nothing different about them. But over from time to time, they see there is light there. There is something different about this group. And as we gather together week by week, not just on the Lord's Day, but throughout the week, showing ourselves to be brothers and sisters, lovingly, caring, patiently, graciously, enduring with one another, we shine a light to a dark world that Jesus is alive, that G the gospel is real, and that they too can put their hope and trust in him. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the unity that we, that we have at Redeemer Fellowship. Lord, I praise you that over the, over the past 10 plus years as, as your people, there has been relatively uh, little to no strife. There's been frustrations and there's been uh, hurt and we've had to walk through those things, but ultimately, all things considering, Lord, there's been a strong unity here. And we know that's only by your grace. That's only by your spirit. That's only by your work that we can live in harmony and peace with one another. I, I ask, Lord, that you would increase that for us, that you would increase our love for each other, 
that we would be drawn to, to gather together, that we'd be drawn to pray for one another, that we'd be drawn to encourage and, and to convict one another, that we'd be encouraged to, to carry the burdens of each other. We ask this all in your name. Amen.